Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Bill. And I'm Mikkel. And we are excited about this chance to have this conversation today. The topic today, Mikkel, you and I were talking uh, a while back, and one of the things I threw out was the what I think are the top five catalysts to helping people awaken. And I want to get into each of those, get your thoughts on each. But let's start by just uh, letting the listeners know, again, the website, if you guys want to check us out, it is almostawakened.org, uh, almostawakened.org. There's a bookstore there. Any of the books that we talk about, and there is one I'll mention today, but any of the books we talk about are generally found in the bookstore. Uh, and also just to recognize the opening song, which was Portugal the Man, Live in the Moment. Uh, I wanted to start today, uh, Mikkel, with the topic of meditation, and we'll go through each of these. But the first one I wanted to list was meditation. And I want to say something about that, but I, I haven't really had much of a meditation practice myself. And I wondered maybe if you did or what your thoughts were on meditation generally. Yeah, I have used meditation. Um, it's one of the things that I still use. I still practice using um, almost every day. And I started I started meditating probably, I want to say three or four years ago, just as a way to help calm my anxiety when I was feeling a lot of stress. But I've also... I also use it to help me go to sleep at night when I'm feeling stressed. I have a hard time turning my brain off at night. Um, I'm constantly analyzing the day and I should have said this or I could have done that. And so meditation is a way for me to just turn my brain off and just focus on breathing and relaxing and not worrying about anything else. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you, I've meditated uh, a handful of times, maybe a dozen at this point, and it certainly does the same thing for me. There was one instance where I was having a ton of anxiety over some things that were going on in my personal life. And a friend of ours uh, reached out to us and said, hey, could I come over and just see if I can be of help to you? And so my friend comes over and we went into uh, a room and we turned the lights down and we played some meditation music and we sat there and, and did probably a half an hour of just uh, focusing on breathing and when that was done, it was like, a, it was so calm. Everything was able to kind of reground itself. The other thing I noticed too, is that when I talk to people who have awakened or are in the process of being almost awakened, uh, they, they almost always point to some sort of meditation practice. The, the wisest voices that seem to be out there all seem to have meditation as part of uh, their life. Yeah, I, it for me, it's a way to reconnect with myself, but I also use meditation when I'm out in nature just to start appreciating the world and the beauty that we, we have surrounding us and as a way for me to connect with everything that's around me. I used meditation this week, Bill. I went to the chiropractor on Monday. I had pulled a muscle in my back and I thought like, it just hurt so bad. I couldn't even couldn't even go to work. So I made an appointment with a chiropractor and he also does acupuncture. So I had my back adjusted and then I'm laying on a massage table and he's putting a couple of needles in my back and in my neck to help release the, the muscle tension. And then he hooked the needles up to some electricity, a little current, because he said the current helps, it, it sends little impulses into the muscle and helps the muscle relax so it's not all knotted. So I'm laying face down and he's he's got everything all hooked up and he says, okay, I'll be back in 17 minutes. And I'm laying there and it, it felt fine at first and then I shifted a little bit and the that changed the current and I could feel it going into my my neck on the front, so down into my throat. And immediately I started panicking, thought, oh, I can't breathe. I'm going to die. Should I say something? And so there was this, <laughs> I really thought that. And so there's this, this moment of, okay, trying to calm myself down. I'm, I'm telling myself, Mikkel, you're going to be fine. You're not going to die. Take some big, deep breaths. And so I'm trying to just focus on my breathing. And that seemed to make it worse because then I felt like I really couldn't breathe. But they had this meditation music playing in the room that I was in. 
And what helped me, this is going to sound so silly, but what helped me in that moment was not just listening to the music, but do you remember the day before um, on Sunday we had you guys over and a couple of other friends over for a little barbecue? That was a lot of fun. I can't forget that. What I remember, what helped me the most, there were two things. One, you and Amanda were sitting across from each other, probably 10 feet apart. And I saw the way that you guys were looking at each other, just so loving and so sweet. So I focused on your faces in my mind and saw you two looking at each other, and that helped calm me a little bit. And then the other thing that helped me was... That morning, one of mine and Kelsey's rituals is having coffee together. And the way that she looked at me that morning, I focused on those two images in my brain and listened to the music, and that's what calmed me down. Yeah, I think it's amazing that when we can put our mind into focusing on something uh, intentionally, knowing that something else is going on, it seems to be pretty magical in the way that our, our brains can kind of shift attention, shift uh, the sensations that it's choosing to feel or to focus on, and you can almost completely change an experience. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So meditation is a, it seems to be a huge catalyst for people moving into awakeness, moving into being more present, for people to uh, begin to gain voices of wisdom and to, to kind of have an understanding of what's important in the world and, and to kind of shift their focus and attention to those things. So Bill, why do you think meditation is, is a tool to help people awaken? What specifically about meditation helps people open their minds? So I think with meditation, Mikkel, the secret is that it gets you to focus on the present moment. And I think anytime we start to focus on the present moment, we become less attached to the stories and the labels that we've given ourselves and given our life. And I think that being present and that awareness of what it means to be present opens you up to seeing the world in a completely different way. Yeah. Sometimes I have a really hard time with being present. I'm often time, and I think part of that is how we grew up. Um, the society that we live in. So I I will focus on the future, like what's happening tomorrow and what's happening next week. And then I'll worry about what it, what I did yesterday and how does that affect what's going to happen tomorrow. So I like that it helps you stay in the present moment. I, I know that when I'm, when I have anxiety, I generally have anxiety over what the past means for for now and what the future holds and the uncertainty of it. And I just find that sometimes if I just focus like, hey, what's my life look like right this moment? Uh, it allows me to get away from some of what, what I'm worried about from what happened and worried about what's going to happen. And, and But the other side of that too is that sometimes bad things are happening to us right in the present moment. And I know that lots of Eastern perspectives tend to say like, hey, suffering is going to happen no matter what in this world. If we can just be present with it and just sense like, oh, there it is again, there it's happening right now, uh, that also seems to shift our focus away from being so anxious about it. Yeah, I like that. The, uh, the second one that I wanted to talk about was reading, and I put learning with it. And I was at a, a party on July 4th, and I'm sitting around with a bunch of friends and one of these friends had a really wise voice, and he, and he grew up in a very rigid system. And I said, you grew up in this in a rigid uh, religious system. And I said, you grew up in the system that really hampered, it, it discouraged you from reading, it discouraged you from learning, it discouraged you from being educated, and yet today you're just this really wise voice. What was your secret? And he goes, he goes my secret was I taught myself to read at three years old. And I chose to be voracious, a voracious reader. I read everything I could get my hands on. And it, it truly amazes me as I look across again at people who are critical thinkers, who are inclusive of diversity, who are letting go of their certainty of their own systems and opening themselves up to the ideas in the larger world. Those people tend to be learners. They tend to love to learn new things, and they tend to either read or listen to a lot of like educational or informational uh, programs. W what are your thoughts, Mikkel, on 
learning and reading and, and what impact those have had in your life? I would have to agree. I I also was a voracious reader. I read whatever I could get my hands on as a kid. In fact, that was part of my escape. There was a time that my dad came into my room once and he said, if you spent an, as much time as you did reading novels, if you spent that time instead on religious reading, imagine where your faith and, and foundation would be. But I, I preferred to read other things. Um, and as I think that in my own awakening process, Books have been a way for me to get insight into other people's perspectives and to find useful tools to help me on this journey. I remember being a kid and going into the school library. I would read Amelia Bedelia. Oh, I love Amelia uh, Bedelia. I, yeah, and I love and I loved all the children. Like I always, I would pay attention to like which books were recognized as award-winning Newberry. No, I think it's called a Newberry, yeah, Newberry. Uh, award, which is the children's literature award. And so I read books like Hatchet and Where the Red Fern Grows. When I went into college, I was taking education. I wanted to be a teacher. And uh, I took a bunch of children lit programs because that's what I wanted to focus on was uh, English. And uh, as I did that, reading all these children, you know, the, the little prince, uh, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, The Giver. I mean, I can yeah. remember all these children literature books, and they were all deeply influential. Even as a young adult, going back into some of these award-winning children's novels was deeply moving to me to read these stories. As I began to get older, things that influenced me, I read Reza Aslan's Zealot, where he presents uh, Jesus... Uh, of the New Testament as this zealot, this religious zealot that we had taken his story and over-embellished him and made him into something he wasn't. The story was deeply influential in me beginning to see my own religious system with new eyes. Reading and continual learning as we go through this list probably has been the greatest catalyst in my own life. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think that there needs to be a slight differentiation between just learning and application, um, I think that if we if we read but we don't really consider or think about the concepts or the ideas or the messages that are in the books, um, it's really not going to do us that much good. We have to we have to sit with those ideas and consider our own ideas and our own values and how they either differ or maybe we need to change. Um, what do you think about that, Bill? I hadn't thought much. So I grew up in a school system that had both a uh, majority of white uh, students and then uh, there were some African-American students in our school as well. But that was the limit of our diversity. There wasn't a lot of diversity in my school. And I really hadn't needed to confront racism up to that point. Like you see it a little bit in TV and, and you see it a little bit in uh, your family kind of play out. But it wasn't something I had to confront head on. And I remember uh, the first time I read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And when I read that book and having to deal with the seriousness of racism, I also remember going to a play. Our whole uh, school class went to a play and it was on Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. And I remember as, I, as I've had to deal with people's lives that were different than mine and having to learn what it was like for those folks to have to deal with the tension in their culture, the prejudice and the bigotry, uh, it really had caused me to kind of look inward and go like, hey, how would, I, how would I handle these situations if I lived in these times and I was raised by the family that was taught to be mean or cruel or to cause trauma to some other person who's different than me? These experiences of things I've had to wrestle with and have be begun, the, I guess, that move from accepting the way you those around you tell you to do things and moving into a space where you're like, I'm going to do it differently than my parents do it. I'm going to do it differently than my grandpa does it. I'm going to do it differently than, than my best friend does it. And you start to say like, no, I want to, I want to do this human thing better. And I want to be something different than the way I've been taught. Yeah. And for me, one of the most impactful books that I had read as a youth was um, The Grapes of Wrath. That's a good one. By Mm. Uh, by John Steinbeck. It's one of my favorites. He's such a phenomenal writer. Um, and and the struggle of the people that, you know, during the Great Depression and 
the Okies as they were trying to find homes and work. And there was a lot of that story that I related to because I grew up very, very poor. Um, but also you talk about meanness and um, wanting to do things differently than, than the way that you had been raised or the way that your family was um, teaching you to do things. And I remember, I think, and I, and I don't know what spurred that, but at, at a very young age, I always remember thinking, I I have to be different. I cannot continue living and doing the same things that my family has done. Right. You, you don't want to pass on that way of doing things that, that it stops here. Mm-hmm. The third one I wanted to talk about, Mikkel, was travel. And I'm, I'm going to play here a short uh, video, actually an audio clip. It's a video, but it's, and, and I'll give a link to it on the website. But you'll hear the audio, and it talks about how travel changes us. This video is about me, but by the end of it, it's about you. Because this is the story of acceptance. For 18 years, I grew up as a Muslim in a small village this size. And in my personal world, I did not accept different religions or different people. I was a Muslim believing I was right. So this is the story of how I went from accepting no one to accepting everyone. One day, I traveled outside of my Muslim village here to Varanasi, India, the Mecca of the Hindus. And once I landed there, I was shocked because I saw Hindus who believe there are millions of gods, not one, who believe this river is holy, who believe they must be burned after death. As a Muslim, you do not agree with any of this. You tell yourself, they must be wrong and you must be right. They must be wrong and you must be right. Right, 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 right. But soon you realize there is no right and there is no wrong. You don't have to agree with the one billion Hindus, but you must accept them as equals. This isn't just religion, this is everything else. When I first came to the United States, I made a new friend. He told me he wants to be a lawyer. I said, that's okay. Then he told me he's gay. I said, that's not okay. But then why is that not okay? Because it doesn't fit in my world? Then maybe my world is not big enough and that it's okay to be gay. It's okay to be Hindu. It's okay to be Muslim. It's okay to be whatever. you travel, the more you'll realize that maybe your village doesn't have all the answers. And that, that might be the hardest thing to realize in your life. I said this video is not about me because really, it's about you. Because one day you'll see something you don't like, something you think is wrong and you'll say to yourself, I must be right. The truth is, no one is right and no one is wrong. The world is much bigger than a village and the best way to live in it is to accept everyone for who they are. So as I, as I watched that video, Mikkel, it touches me that People who travel, people who see diversity, people who step outside of their own system and they start to see like, oh, other humans do this differently, whether it's religion, whether it's cuisine, whether it's politics or uh, any facet of our social lives. When you see people do things differently, you begin to recognize like, oh, there really isn't an us and a them. There's just us. Yeah, I would agree. One travel experience that I had that kind of shifted my view and, and helped me understand that concept of us more than the us versus them was when I went to Mexico and as I was walking along the streets, there's these little kids, they're selling chiclet gums, chicle, chicle, you know, they'd call to you. And, and I could not fathom, you know, if there was a God, how this God could make me, I don't know, just like... I was no more deserving than they were. This person on the street selling chicle gums was just as important as I was and that I was no more deserving than they were. 
And looking at people through different eyes changes things. You and I here live in southern Utah, and uh, we've got our spouses here. We've got our friends here. I used to live in Ohio, and I used to live up in northern Ohio, flat terrain, uh, right on Lake Erie, lots of uh, vacation stuff happening, lots of hustle and bustle, boating and and fishing and camping and things like that going on in the area. There was a roller coaster park, a famous one, Cedar Point, uh, nearby. And one of the things my wife and I did, and, I, I want, and I'm kind of worried here. I'm a little nervous because a couple of weeks ago we... We pissed off our listenership that are Trump supporters. Um, and, and I don't mean, by the way, Mikhail, I don't mean Trump supporters like, like you know, he was like the lesser of two evils and that's who I voted for. And, uh, and you know, I'm not liking everything he's doing, but our country seems to be in decent shape. Not like that guy. I'm surprised we had Trump supporters listening. Yeah, I think we did. Because those don't seem like very awake people. Yeah, so I don't mean those people. I mean the guys that are like, look, look, I don't mind that he's putting Mexicans in cages. I think we should put everybody in cages. Like that person isn't listening to this podcast. So that's the group I'm talking about. And I didn't think, just like you, I didn't think they existed. I didn't think we had those listeners. But after that episode, we had a few people reach out to us and say like, hey, I'm going to have a lot of trouble with this podcast if you're going to be picking on Trump all the time. And so now I'm worried, going back here to travel, now I'm worried that we're going to piss off our Amish listenership. Because, um, you know, I, I worry that if there are some Amish people out there, I wouldn't think there would be. But there may be a few Amish listeners, and I hope this story isn't offensive to them. But living in northern Ohio, one of the things my wife and I would do for vacation uh, is we would go down to Amish country. And uh, in the Amish don't believe in using electricity. They believe in an older style of life, and they try to avoid some of the modern conveniences, so they don't use cars. Uh, they don't have their own telephones, although they're allowed to use someone else's telephone. They ride in horse and buggies. And as I'm sitting down there in Amish country and experiencing what their life is like, Two things happen. One is that there's an appreciation for the slower lifestyle. We would often rent a cabin and we would just stay for two or three days and it life slowed down a bunch. You could sense like, look, it's not so important to be constantly moving around. The other thing that happened was a negative thing, which is you see this group that punishes any of its members if they stray too far from orthodoxy. The Amish practice shunning. So if somebody breaks the rules, then that person is essentially outed from the community and they're shunned. And so I started to see like both pros and cons to this system that were a little different and in some ways really different to my system. And so then every time we would visit this place, we'd go back home. I'd have to sit and kind of think about like, hey, how is, how is my system the same? How is my system different? What is good? What is bad? And, and then I start to see in my own system shunning to a lesser degree and recognizing like, oh, we shouldn't do that. That's not a healthy thing to do. So even traveling short distances to experience some section of people that do life differently than you seems to be a great tool to waking up. I agree. And, and my experience with that is as a kid, I mostly grew up in Utah, um, spent a, you know, a couple of years in Wyoming. Um, but when I was a teenager, 14, 15, we moved from Utah to Pennsylvania, not too far away from where you were at, Bill. And here I was exposed to, you know, most of my life I had just grown up with individuals who practiced the same religious beliefs um, that my family did. And moving to Pennsylvania opened my eyes to a whole, like a whole new world, literally. Because here I was experiencing people who belonged to the Catholic religion or various religious systems. And also just a different, people were different. And I don't, just the culture I think was different than what I'd always experienced or grown up in. And that I think really helped open my eyes to just being more accepting of people and realizing that my way or the way that my family was living wasn't necessarily the right way or the best way. Yeah. What, what all places have you been to? Like, can you name three, four, five, six places that you've traveled to in the course of your adult life and, and as well as your childhood? Yeah. As a kid, like I said, we moved to Pennsylvania when I was a teenager. Um, I lived in Nebraska for a little while, this really teeny tiny town with my aunt. Um, I think our whole high school had a population of 50 from ninth grade to 12th grade. And then, um, 
I, I traveled to Mexico and then I did a humanitarian trip to Ecuador and that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Traveling around, most of my travel has been inside the United States. Outside of you know this, this two-hour drive south to Amish country, when you feel like you've entered a foreign country, uh, my exposure to diversity uh, in terms of travel has been limited to just traveling various places in the United States, uh, Kentucky, North Carolina, South Carolina, West Virginia. Uh, so I've, I've been there, of course, moving out to Utah and being in this state, which has a unique culture to it. Uh, went to Canada to visit Niagara Falls as well as to go to Toronto and, and made a visit there. But not a lot of culture in that way. And so travel travel for me hasn't been a big one. But it sounds like you've done some pretty cool things, that humanitarian trip. I'm just curious, what was it like to to be there serving these people, uh, you know, essentially being side by side with them, working and doing things and trying to help them out? What was that like for you? It was such a phenomenal experience um, because I really didn't feel like I was helping them that much. But the way that they, the way that they received that was uh, amazing. I mean, we. So, what we did is uh, I went with a group of surgeons. It's through an organization called Hugs, and they do ear surgery on kids who have microtia, which is an ear abnormality. So they either don't have an outside ear, or there's some additional cosmetic problems. Um, and, and there may even be some internal hearing issues. And so we go and we take cartilage from their ribs and the surgeons make an ear. I'll have to put pictures up somehow, but they make an ear and it's a two-step process. The first, the first year is taking the cartilage from the rib, making the ear, tucking the cartilage underneath the skin or the scalp on the side of the head. And then they wait another year. And when the team goes back the next year, they finish up. Um, some cosmetic touches and and make it look the way that it's supposed to, and so it's it's people who have no money who are often ostracized because of their deformity, and they like when I went and we were all done, the whole entire bottom floor of the hospital, which wasn't that big, but it was still filled with not only the patient but their f- entire family coming and telling us thank you. One woman brought us a 20-pound bag of avocados just as a way to say thank you because that was all they had. Kids made handmade crafts and they just notes and it just was so overwhelming the amount of gratitude that they would have um, for us. And it was interesting too, Bill, because they don't... We Americans are so spoiled in some ways. Um, These kids... They don't get pain medicine. They get Tylenol or ibuprofen for this major surgery. We're, we're cutting open their ribs, taking cartilage from their ribs, and they get Tylenol or ibuprofen. And most of the time, that they, they do fine. They don't need other drugs. Yeah. Wow. So it's just, just fascinating to me. I would have to say my career as a nurse has probably been the most influential in helping me get exposure to diversity. Yeah, I have to imagine, I mean, again, you said, like, I didn't feel like I was doing this huge thing, but you're involved in this effort to help these kids have a a more uh, acceptable appearance. Like, they have to be self-conscious to some degree that their body has this uh, malformity. And on the other hand, you're also, like, restoring some level of function to them, too. It just feels like... It's one of the things I regret is not doing something like that when I was younger. And I've got to believe that people who do what you did and expose themselves to uh, other cultures, specifically when people seem to be in a little more poverty, uh, a little more of a struggle to kind of get by in the day-to-day life, that it makes you appreciate what you have and, and you begin to see humanity a little differently. Well, Bill, I was having a hard time waking up this morning. You know how it goes. You stay up too late partying or hanging out with friends. And then you've got to get up early to record a podcast. So what do we do in those instances? And on every other day of the week? Coffee. Red Roca Coffee. It helps you and me as we're awakening in the morning. My favorite brew is Heathens or Good Mojo. And sometimes I like it hot. In the summertime, every once in a while, I'll drink it cold. Red Roca Coffee is a small family-owned business here in the United States. If you need a cup of joe to help you awaken, give Red Roca Coffee a try. We're sure you'll like it. We're sure you'll like it. That's Red Roca, R-O-C-A, coffee.com. When you place your order, put in the code AWAKE. 
A-W-A-K-E. You'll get a 10% discount and you'll get free shipping on orders over $30. Check out Red Roca Coffee today. Again, Red Roca Coffee. For those times when you need help awakening. So as we're going through this list, we've named meditation, we've named reading and learning, we've named travel. The, the last two that I want to get into, the first one, so number four, psychedelic drugs. And I don't know, I don't know how much you want to say about that, Mikkel. There's a few things I want to add in terms of like Michael Pollan's book and a study that I came across recently, uh, but I thought I would at least get your thoughts first. Yeah, it's super interesting to me. Um, it's something that I definitely want to explore um, at some point, but I have talked to a couple of people who have used psychedelics and their experience has been so interesting to me that it does. I want to know more. So either researching, um, continuing to talk to people, it just, the, the people that I've talked to, it just helps open their mind in a variety of different ways. And it depends, I think, on the psychedelic that, that you use. And so not having used any, it's really hard for me to relate to those experiences. But they they talk about, one person in particular talks about their connection with the universe. They just see themselves as this this piece of the universe that exists, but it's connected to everything else. So connected to the plants and connected to the stars and the planets and this energy force that exists that's never going to be destroyed. And then another person told me about an experience that they had with MDMA and how it makes it makes you feel connected to yourself, but to other people as well. And you're able to look at things in a way that it doesn't poke you as much, like you can still hear the information and you can still sit with your shadow, but you're not judging it and you're not judging another person. So it's really fascinating to me. Yeah, I think as I go back and have read a lot on how drugs were outlawed and then again going to today, how they're being reevaluated. When I look at in the 1940s, 1950s, there was this effort to go like, oh, these things are bad. Let's let's make all of these things illegal. And so lots of these drugs, they're put into various schedules, schedule one, schedule two, schedule three, schedule four, with schedule one being the most illegal and you get in the most trouble if you have them. And some of those drugs that are in there, I think, uh, I think psychedelic mushrooms, I think LSD, uh, MDMA is one of those that's in there, other methamphetamines and things like that. And as time has gone on now, here we are, 2019, there's some interesting things happening. Uh, you mentioned MDMA, the street name for that being ecstasy. They, they just released a study where they took uh, military personnel who had PTSD. And PTSD is one of those things that you can reduce it. You can give people tools and resources to cope with it, but you can't get rid of it. Or at least we didn't think so until the study comes out where they took, uh, again, military personnel who had PTSD. They went through three sessions with uh, MDMA. They would take the MDMA. They would then have a therapy session as they're under the influence of the drug. And after three sessions, they said 72% of the people studied, the PTSD was completely gone, gone. And that is like a modern uh, medical miracle. And for that uh, drug to have that incredible of an effect on people who are dealing with deep trauma is, is amazing to me. Uh, Michael Pollan wrote a book, uh, How to Change Your Mind. And, and I would suggest to the listeners, every listener should be reading that book. Michael Pollan is a foodie. He's a, he's a... Like a food critic? Food critic, recipe guy, kind of comes up with uh, lots of feedback in the, in the food industry. And that's where he focused his life. And suddenly his dad got sick. I think it was cancer, but his dad got sick and was terminal. And Michael goes back and reinvestigates these drugs that he saw as being bad his entire life and looks back at these and reevaluates them. And his whole book is like what that experience was like to come out the other side and say, no, I was wrong. These substances have incredible uses uh, if they're used appropriately. Another study that just came out was talking about psychedelic mushrooms, which by the way, you're watching our nation move from these things being illegal to recognizing their usefulness. So again, the country, it is sweeping across the country that cannabis is becoming uh, legalized both for medical use and in some places recreational. And you also have just Colorado just passed where they made psychedelic mushrooms legal. 
And there's this recognition that, again, a study just came out that said that uh, taking psychedelic mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms change your mind. And when I saw the header on the article, I thought, oh my gosh, they change your mind. Like, is it really bad? What does it do? And what I, when I read the article, what happened was that people who took psychedelic mushrooms, their mind changed to make them more accepting and more inclusive of diversity and of new ideas and of new ways of doing things. It really can be a tool for many to awaken. I, I, like you, I have lots of friends who have taken some of these things. And I've got one friend who uh, lives up north in northern Utah. And his use of psychedelic mushrooms, he says, has been pivotal in his own development of his consciousness and seeing himself as part of a universe. And the people who take those things tend to take better care of the planet. They tend to be more concerned and compassionate. Uh, towards others, specifically the others who are different from them. They tend, to, again, to welcome new ideas. It really seems to be an incredible tool. Yeah, it's so interesting to me, especially because, you know, I grew up in in an era where um, drugs were highly discouraged, you know, and, and they still are to a certain extent in kids, but I, I never heard about drugs being a positive experience. It was always, always, always negative. And so it's just interesting to even just sit and consider could this be therapeutic? And and what makes it therapeutic? Um, so to consider that it could be beneficial rather than just remembering or thinking that all substances are harmful has been really interesting. And I would say that there was one thing that I read, and I wish I could remember where I read it, but it showed that alcohol, which is legal, is way more harmful to you than marijuana and some of the other substances that we've already talked about. Yeah, there the occurrence of somebody injuring themselves is greater on alcohol than on, for instance, psychedelic mushrooms. There is research and studies that show that for your own health, that alcohol increases your chance of cancer. For instance, uh, it does have some benefit uh, for reducing heart attacks, but also causes lots of other health issues. And and so as you're pointing out that perhaps maybe these things we've made illegal, maybe these things that we've said these are really bad, in reality are much more uh, healthy for us to take and transformative in terms of us becoming awakened uh, or entering that awakening process. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody having an awakening process on alcohol, so. No, no, and sometimes it's more of a passing out process. <laughs> we, we know a few friends who have done that, right? We do. Okay. We won't, we won't say your We're name. We're not going to name names, no, Bill. No, that wouldn't be right. Um, the last one I wanted to get into is existential crisis. And I think you and I can speak to this specifically in that we both were in a, a high-demand fundamentalist religious system. And I think whether you're encountering an existential crisis such as investing so much in your marriage and maybe your marriage fails or... Maybe you invest this in this idea that if you do the right things, that life will work out and suddenly a loved one gets this really traumatic disease and, and, and you experience death uh, in somebody you care about when it, it comes maybe early or tragically and you have to deal with that. For me, it was being in a religious system that eventually, as I wanted it so badly to be true and to be like, this is God's way to come face to face that it wasn't and things didn't add up and having to like take not only my identity apart and this system apart, but almost kind of like just piece by piece looking at who I am and what I, what I was and what experiences I had and what those experiences meant and deconstructing my entire life in some ways led me, I think, in, in a huge uh, degree to awaken through that deconstruction process. Yeah, and I was talking to Kelsey about that this morning, kind of talking about, you know, her own existential crisis and, and what kind of brought mine on. And it's interesting because her, for her, for Kelsey, it was sitting with the realization that she was gay and how could she make this religious system work knowing and, and starting to accept who she really was. And, and I get that because I went through a similar experience. Um, but what, when I look back and think about that, what hit me the most about this is my own confrontation with death. Um, you know, I had an experience in 2007 
where I almost drowned and my son was with me, who was eight at the time, and and getting sucked into the ocean by a riptide. And, you know, we, we both were almost drowning. And I walked away from that experience questioning everything. Um, and it took me a long time to kind of get over that. It wasn't the pleasant light at the end of the tunnel and relatives helping you out. It was, it was, sounds like it was more gloomy than that. Yeah. So I had this picture in my head because part of it was what I'd been taught, um, through my religious system that, that when you die, you'll, you'll be greeted by loved ones who've already passed on. And it's supposed to be this, you know, paradise and this calming and, and relaxing experience. And I experienced none of that. What I experienced was you know, my life literally flashing before my eyes and feeling completely alone and feeling um, just darkness. I felt enveloped by darkness. I, you know, when I, when I was rescued at the very like last second, I wondered like, where was that? You know, I was a good person. I was doing good things. Um, I was checking all the boxes within my religious system and I had none of that. So sitting with that and and questioning is sort of where I began my awakening process. I was happy with the direction my life was going. I felt very successful within my system. It rewarded me continually simply for being a white male, simply for showing up on Sunday. Uh, And when that system fell apart, when I had to reevaluate what was real and what wasn't, like you, it was a huge a huge piece of the puzzle of opening myself up to the world, not being the way I thought it was and uh, pushing me onto that path of awakening. I can, I can remember over the last seven to 10 years, it just feels like such a big difference from then till now. And every piece of the way was me having to kind of deconstruct my reality and specifically within that system. It's interesting because I almost went through this depressive period after that happened. Um, and, and there was some anger there too, because things weren't as I had always been taught. And so having to come, you know, reconcile that um, was interesting. And that's when I really started reading and learning and researching about different things outside of my religious system, not, not just like religion, but different ways of thinking and um, living life. We, uh, I think we'd love for the listeners to chime in and share, you know, maybe we missed something. I, I did think if I was going to add a bonus one in, if I was going to add a number six, I would add friends who are on the awakening journey too. Oh, I would, I would so agree. Kelsey and I were talking about that this morning and Kelsey's insight was, you know, maybe it's really hard to read all of the books. There's a lot of yeah, books. There's a lot of books out there. A lot of libraries. But- yeah, but talking to people who have read some of those books and getting their insight is, I would have to agree, I think that's a, another way to help just continue your own awakening, helping you be exposed to different thoughts and ideas. Humans interacting with a different human is almost like reading a new book. Like, totally. Right? Like there's all these, you get to have this new experience. You get to hear someone else's life and their experience and the things they've learned, which are always going to be at least slightly, if not significantly different than yours. And having friends who are on the awakening path, it just allows you to be around people who are always trying to move into growth, move into deeper stages of awareness and consciousness. And as they have conversations, as you point out around books that maybe you don't have time to read and you're reading something they're not. And all of this sharing and asking questions and digging deep into ourselves, I think it sets up a really incredible space for the awakening process to, uh, to take place. Yeah, I would agree. So we'd love to hear from listeners if there's something we missed, if there's some part of the awakening process that you think like, hey, you guys forgot this catalyst, send us a message. You can email us at almostawakenedpodcast at gmail.com. That's almostawakenedpodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love if uh, listeners, if you're enjoying the podcast, put a review up on iTunes. It helps us have a higher uh, ranking and more visibility there so we can attract new listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Also check out our partner, Red Roca Coffee. Curious, McKellen, any concluding thoughts on uh, things that prompt us into awakening or maybe even just the ground we've covered? 
Yeah, let's talk about FOMO for a second, Bill. <laughs> okay, so here we go again. No, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. You do have FOMO. You, um, all right, so let me tell it this way, and then you can you can tell us kind of what you're thinking. But in our group uh, of friends, both really close friends nearby, close friends who are further away, maybe folks that we don't know quite as well, our group of people down here in Southern Utah, we're always enjoying experiences as a whole, as a group, and we're always experiencing uh, fun together separately. And when the group splits up a little bit and enjoys some time with each other separately, maybe four people go to dinner, or maybe six people go watch a movie, or maybe eight people play uh, a board game at somebody's house. When that happens, Mikkel, you experience FOMO? Oh, yeah. Big time. Tell us about that. I I just wish that there was a way that we could all be together all of the time, but I know that that's not realistic, and it's also not healthy to spend twenty four seven with with everyone. And but there's still this like, you know, dichotomy. I want to be with them, and and yet I'm happy for them to be able to experience, you know, getting together with other people. And so how do you how do you sit with the FOMO, Bill? Well, let me ask you first, are you always completely happy that you're missing out on things? No, you know that. No. <laughs> so, so inside you, let, let's just be completely honest. Are you ready to be completely honest? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. So when uh, me and Amanda and four other people from our group go do something that we've reached out to each other uh, behind the scenes and we've invited each other to do something and we go do something and you and Kelsey find out that... Uh, the six of these other people did this fun thing. Uh, what are your like? What is some of the emotions you're dealing with? What are some of the feelings that are inside you? So old me, I'm getting better at this. I'm not perfect at it, but old me would say things like, "They don't like me. They don't want to be with me," and it's you know I would get mad, and I would text you this tirade. I would have a little temper tantrum. You, yeah, you, you would do that. I would. I would. <laughs> like I said, I've gotten better. Inside, much better. Inside, I still might be having a temper tantrum, but I'm getting over it much quicker. And I'm learning to be kind to myself and stop saying negative things. I'm not getting any more messages from you when these things happen. I know. It's because I'm doing a lot better. In fact, <laughs> we, Kelsey and I, it was interesting because just kind of going along with that, Kelsey and I were having a conversation about someone um, that we know that that was having a little bit of a temper tantrum. And I was pissed that this other person was having a fit. And so I'm telling Kelsey all the reasons why I'm upset. And she's she looks at me and she's like, hey, babe, like, do you realize you're acting the same way? And I was so mad. And yet I saw it. I like, was fuck like, you, fuck I, you, babe. I know. Fuck that's you. what I said in my head. I was like, fuck you, Kelsey. How dare you? How dare you? And then I was like, what I said to her was, I know, I don't want to hear about it. And so she backed off and I sat with it for about 10 minutes. And I was like, man, how can I call somebody else out on their bad behavior when I'm acting just as poorly? Isn't it that Buddhist thing that when you see something in someone else that deeply agitates you, it's almost certain that that same behavior or perspective is present inside of you. Yeah, which I don't like hearing that either because, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I have this perception of myself that I'm much better than that, but I'm not. So in this FOMO, so you feel this hurt from not being included and not being uh, part of this experience that other members of your friend group is having. And, and so you're trying to deal with kind of missing out. When, when we all get back together again, Mikkel, is, do, you, do you find that suddenly you're just not as worthy as a friend or you're not as valued? No, I know that, that, you know, I know that people still want to be around me and they still want to hang out and we still want to laugh and have fun. And so that's what I have discovered is I would rather my friends go do things that make them happy, but I still want to hear about it, even if I do have a little bit of FOMO. It's okay for me to experience that that fear of missing out, that that lack of connection. But it also um, is okay for me to be happy for them and to not try and diminish their experience just because I'm feeling some FOMO. So we, we I think you and I have talked about that a little bit. Kelty and I have talked about that a lot. And we talked with a couple of our friends um, earlier in the week about this same thing because I think it's a normal experience. I think we all experience FOMO at times. Don't you agree? Oh, I think we all do. I certainly do. And I think we all feel poked 
when people we care about go and do something fun and we're not included in that. But at the same time, like you point out, this is normal. Like people have to be able to do fun things with whoever they want to do fun things with without us like fracturing our friendships over missing out on some some event and recognizing that when we come back together again, again, life is always changing, but we're still, like you're saying, we're still friends. Yeah, still friends and still happy to see each other and still happy to learn from their experience and share in the joy that they had when they got to be with other people. And so I just think that, you know, we just need to realize that there's going to be times when we don't all get to hang out and it's okay for all of us to do our own thing. Yeah. So sometimes it's inviting the entire group and some people are just out of town, but at the same time, the other side of it is that, you know, Jenny and Greg are perfectly within their right to invite uh, Tom and Susie to go to dinner without anybody else being invited. Like we all get to know each other more intimately when we're in these smaller settings. And I remember like, again, pointing to my wife also has FOMO and just the other day, we're having a conversation about uh, her feeling a little poke about not being included in something. And I say, babe, that's not fair. I said, there's a time where uh, you, me, and these other four people did this thing. And remember those, those other friends of ours, they weren't included. It didn't bother you then, did it? And she's like, no, it didn't bother me then, did it? And so there's this recognition, like we're all doing things independently with others. And we don't want others to hurt or fracture friendships with us because they weren't included in that specific event. And so we have to give people the same safe space to go do their thing without us being there and without us having hurt feelings. Yeah, I agree. It's I tough. Think that's one of the, yeah, it is tough. It is tough. And I'm just grateful that everybody is so patient with me. Yeah, we all need patience because we've all got things that we're messing up on. And I, the beauty, I think, of you and me is the ability to kind of call each other out in the moment almost adding some level of embarrassment at times, but the reality like, hey, I'm just saying this to help you be better. Uh, there's not there's not like shame. There's not uh, intentional like trying to offend or trying to uh, mock or embarrass. And, and so it makes it much easier to kind of sit in that space and to take that feedback. Feedback that neither one of us would take from our spouses uh, because it feels like that's even riskier. I know. We need to figure that out, Bill. Why yeah. don't we hear it from our spouse? Right. Maybe we ought to do an entire episode about dealing with tension and critical feedback from your loved one versus feedback from your friends. That might make a good episode. Let's I, do it. We should. I, I just want to wrap up saying, again, if you know of catalysts that are, that are helping you awaken, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, put a message up on the Facebook post or come visit the website and email us. We'd love to hear from listeners. Again, put a review up. The closing song today is, uh, I was trying to think about awakening and this song is touching to me specifically having to do with my existential crisis. It's Tubby Love, which is a, a reggae band. I'm really big into reggae music, so you'll probably hear a lot of reggae songs from time to time when I'm choosing the music. Uh, before we go to the closing song, which is Tubby Love, In the Garden, uh, Mikkel, any idea what we're going to cover in our next episode? Yeah, your guess is just as good as mine. Ooh. We'll figure that out in the next couple of days. Ooh, so listeners, you're in for a surprise. The next episode of Almost Awakened. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nononsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman. 